Hi, everybody. Welcome to ironradio.org. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm a sports nutritionist and an exercise physiologist and a former competitive bodybuilder. Hi, folks. I'm Robert Fortress Fortney. I'm a journalist, former editor from Muscle Mag International, former competitive bodybuilder, and powerlifter. And this is Charles Staley, creator of Escalating Density Training, author of Muscle Logic, and uh, I'm also a master's uh, level weightlifting competitor. Okay. This week we have Keith Scheiman. I met Keith uh, in Wisconsin at an NSCA state clinic. He's a certified strength conditioning specialist. He's certified by USA Weightlifting. So you may have some stuff to converse with him about, Charles. Uh, and he's a licensed massage therapist. He's also co-creator of Perfect Competition in Davie, Florida, which I understand is sort of a hotbed for NFL, Combine, and Major League Baseball prep. How are you doing today, Keith? Doing good. Doing good. Thank you for having me. Uh, I just have a couple of questions here for you. I, I guess, first of all, uh, aside from that brief intro, maybe just you could tell everybody about yourself a little bit. Um, well, basically, here in Wisconsin, um, I set up shop and uh, with a PT clinic, uh, basically a physical therapy clinic, where I do most of the post-physical therapy integration into regular functional strength and then uh, soft tissue work. From there, uh, we've created a, a neural activational pattern set where we can delineate like what fibers are not working out of a certain muscle, get them working again so that you can actually do some kind of exercise. So instead of worrying about, you know, if um, you're able to do a certain set from a, an assessment, um, the, the the movement itself will delineate whether or not it's working or not so you can stay pain-free in order to get to the more difficult type of work. Mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of it's interesting the, w- the way that that particular um, avenue of soft tissue is, is kind of opening up into strength and conditioning and how it's becoming more specific to certain fibers or strands of muscle rather than just the entire muscle itself and then how that works into speed and power, too. So is that primarily a, like injury rehab, or are you, uh, do you have much work just helping people recover from kind of usual training, you know, soreness and, and stress and fatigue? Well, it's, it's all facets. It's pretty much a base. You know, it, it's where um, I think a lot of people have that missing link of where to start. You know, all coaches deal with, you know, this is a functional pattern or a pattern, not necessarily functional, but um, a pattern that has been broken down and, and it looks great, but, you know, the person is still exhibiting pain. And it's not structural because, you know, the MRIs and the, the, the CT scans or any type of x-ray shows that, you know, hey, look, it's, there's nothing wrong with the joint, you know, the ligaments are intact. But what's really happening and what a lot of people do and that I, I was questioning a lot about and because I mean, we've done it for years has been, okay, here's the, you know, functional movement screen or the overhead squat assessment. And with every single movement, there are so many muscles and, and so many joints involved. That if anyone can delineate what really happens at what specific joint, I think that they're amazing, you know. So it's, yeah. it, it's, it's about being more specific so that you don't spend so much time doing stuff you don't need to do. So, and, I, and that's, that's what we've really been working towards is, is, you know, making sure that if we do an overhead squat assessment, it's to be able to see a gross pattern and then see how the smaller stuff at the individual joint level 
is reacting to and creating that pattern. So we know specifically what ranges of motion are off and what specific fibers are basically aberrant in that muscle pattern. So it's, would, it's how would you classify this? I mean, maybe I shouldn't try to pigeonhole it, but is your uh, is your approach or these assessments are they more from your background in, in uh, like massotherapy, or is it more of a the strength conditioning background, or is it more of a, a hybrid physical therapy thing? It, it's actually a hybrid of um, a couple different um, manual therapies and along with um, some of the old Michael Clark, um, Greg Cook functional movement screening stuff where, you know, you look at the overall pattern, and then from there, um, I really don't do going to metrics anymore because I think, you know, everyone's completely different and, you know, you're going to have, I mean, if you had their parent in front of you where you could say, hey, look, this is his range of motion that his father had and his father had because the genetic level is huge too, um, this is what I should be looking for. But uh, on the overall scale of things with uh, muscle activation technique and muscle energy technique and then also um, there is ART that's out there, you know, all those are, are really good means of soft tissue therapy that shows specific deficiencies based on the opposite side of the body. And I, I always use symmetry as uh, a key indicator of what one joint could do or one joint could not do. So basically what we do is we try to get both sides of the body symmetrical in strength rather than in posture. So in that way, the body can then dictate what is biomechanically efficient for itself rather than me saying, well, you need to be, you know, you're, you're upper crossed, so from here, you know, well, maybe his father was upper crossed. Maybe his father's father was upper crossed. And, you know, he has a, a huge um, uh, lordotic curve but has no lower back pain. So there's always going to be all these outliers, and how we get to the bottom of those outliers, I think, is through that type of delineation. So it is a hybrid. Do you think some of that family history and genetic kinds of stuff, do you think that's uh, a new kind of outlook uh, when it comes to these kinds of assessments? I think I think it, it's been around for a long time. I just think it got kind of pushed underneath the rug because everyone wants to be so specific with it and everyone thinks they have all these answers to it. And so if, if you know, this person has this, then they automatically have a progression for it, you know. And, and for me, I think, Every single person, even though it's somewhat time-consuming, is you have to get to the bottom of what that specific problem is. And, of course, there's going to be progressions to help somebody. But, you know, since they're an individual, you know, you have to make sure that you change that so that you can get to the stuff that you can progress. So, and I think that's that's what's really overlooked and because we want to make sure that you know, we can get through the volumes of people in order to be able to keep ourselves afloat because we got to keep ourselves in business, that it's something where you have to become more and more proficient at it. And it all goes back to, you know, I've been studying a lot of a guy named A.I. Kapanji. Um, he's um, more of a kinesiologist. He's got a, he's got a, uh, actually he's an orthopedic surgeon who created a, a series called, um, I believe it's uh, Kinesiology of the Joints. And there's Great. an That's upper... Fine. Yeah, upper, lower, and uh, cervical um, volumes of that. And from there, I, I, I find myself going back to what fibers are producing what motions to find what lines of pull. And, you know, it sets my, my strength work up from there, my speed work up, because how can the form be good if fibers are just not functioning? So... 
Charles, are you familiar with that? Um, I'm familiar with Kapanji's work. Um, I don't do, per se, a lot of the kind of corrective exercise stuff, but, you know, it, it is a fascinating topic because there are just so many potential uh, uh, compensations and, and, you know, the, what we're really, I think, are talking about is compensation. So if you have an injury or if you have muscle muscle fibers or muscle sections that aren't firing right, then other ones have to take up that work. And, you know, the I think it's a question of whether or not your compensations are uh, ones that are likely to cause injury or not. So uh, it's it's uh, it's interesting stuff for sure. And I, I do like the functional movement screen that, that Keith mentioned earlier for sure. You know, what strikes me as kind of odd is that, like in nutrition, the last 10 years, there's been so much talk about nutrigenomics, you know, how people respond to food, foods differently based on their genes. And I just don't see a lot of that kind of discussion. Uh, I think guys like Keith are probably um, pioneers or pulling it back out from under the rug, as it were, when it comes to applying those same genetic individual principles to, uh, you know, to uh, rehab and to movement patterns and, and things like that. And I'm not saying people aren't aware of them, but you don't really, you know, I mean, how many times have you heard the term rehab genomics or, you know, or exercise genomics, you know, yeah. and it's, to me, when I was actually at that strength conditioning clinic, one of the things that kind of struck me, because I've never really been to a, an NSCA-type meeting before, was there's a lot of room for interpretation and creativity. And like, like he said, there's everybody's got their own progression models for how to, you know, um, correct someone or or help them improve. And a lot of that just comes back to genes. But wouldn't it be cool if we could isolate certain genes or identify these things with a genetic screen, you know, it would just be like harder science instead of this more like open-ended artistic sure. thing. And I don't know if that's good or bad. I'm just kind of making an there's, observation. There's, yeah, there's a lot of artistic expression when it comes to coaching. You know, I mean, when it comes to being a strength coach, you not only have to have the hard science to, to back your progressions, but, you know, there's seeing how somebody responds and how to be able to relate you know where someone's at in their progression is, is as far as an athlete or just um, for training is is an art form. You have to be able to to be able be able to relate to somebody. So and that's that's huge when it comes to coaching. Yeah. Hey, I I I actually have a burning question here. I, I was hoping Keith could tell us about some of the latest techniques, whether it's you know myofascial release or. Um, any of the kinds of stuff that that you do a lot or that you're interested in. I mean, what's new in kind of soft tissue recovery and, and you know, what's the literature say? I mean, I have some generalized notions, but just maybe bring us up to a state-of-the-art kind of situation. Well, the stuff that, that I've been doing and that I've been um, researching on is just how much regular lymphatic drainage and also just general massage post-exercise can really facilitate um, healing. And really what, what I've noticed is that when people tend to go deeper as far as their massages go, it, it tends to bring up more dysfunction than it does function. So when you're going post-massage, the post-massage should be quick. It should be more with something called effleurage where it's more like a gliding and also a petrissage, which is a light kneading type of massage where it flushes out the system to promote um, better liquid transfer to flush out the metabolites and get in more nutrients to the lymphatic system so that you can basically have your cells feed. So when, when we're doing post-workout, we'll be hitting up the, um, the light massage, 
pre-workout, I will do more of finding out what patterns aren't working and then get them working and then go into a generalized warm-up. So that's kind of the, the technique structure that I've been, I've been doing lately. Um, also, one of the things that I thought was really fascinating was um, the combination of an ART with an MAT. With um, ART, basically the whole concept is um, finding a muscle that is um, hypertonic or tight and um, compressing certain parts of it as you're going through a range of motion with, uh, with a joint. Um, with an MAT, what you're doing is you're looking for the shortest possible position of a specific target muscle and seeing if it has any strength. And then from there, isometrically strengthening it, which has great, great effects. Um, you'll see changes in range of motion up to 30 degrees. Now, whether or not you can hold that is all based on how your fluid, um, your fluid or uh, inflammation response is or if there's any structural damage. So another great thing about an MAT is it tells you whether or not it's something you should be dealing with or if it's out of your scope of practice and they should be seeing a PT or um, someone above that. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So we've been really specific with the type of treatment that we've been able to do and also staying within our scope of practice, which makes me feel a whole heck of a lot more comfortable than just putting someone through a workout and them saying, hey, um, you know, this hurts or this hurts. Well, let's see what's really happening at that entire limb or if it's coming from a part of the core, which is now dysfunction because it's not able to generate any stability or force. And then from there we can get it working and see if the limb will work again because the stability is there from internal. Mm-hmm. So it's, Keith, it's, how, how, how does this work in your facility in terms of athletes who train there? Are, are, are you uh, personally providing the soft tissue work uh, and coaching as well, or do you have different staff members that do this over the course of a session, or how does that work? Well, what I do is I have certain times of the day where I have athletes that come in that need um, the soft tissue work, and then from there I do um, small group sessions so that I can see what's really happening at, at all levels and then see where I need to progress my soft tissue work and sure. the overall strength work. So and like you said earlier, I, I basically have templates of my workouts that I do and from there progress people off of those type of progressions. Um, my corrective work is very sporadic. It's based on a needs-only um, principle. So if, but 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 those uh, corrective exercises may only be holding your arm in a position for six seconds, you know, six reps. So and and from there, we're going to take it through a broader range of motion to see if it's then functioning at that range of motion. So then I can go through and you know, say my arm's not working through um, horizontal. You know, abduction, and then from there we realize, okay, well, you know, the scapula is not being supported. Um, the the serratus anterior with the um, the superior fibers aren't holding the scapula in place. Well, then we get that working again. So now the joint's being supported, and then the rest of the cuff can function, and then the rest of the distal muscles can then work. So it's it it's pretty interesting stuff. That's cool. Very cool. Very cool. So, and, and like um, like Charles, like you said before, uh, I really don't believe in straight periodization. I mean, I've, I've been following uh, Dr. William Kramer's work with 
nonlinear periodization in like the block, the Soviet block form, where yeah, yeah. you know they're just they're they're putting together like if you need a power day, here's a power day. If you need a strength day, here's a strength day. If you need a strength endurance, here's a strength. Yeah, you know what? That's such a good approach. Basically, you have modules, you know. Yeah, definitely. And it's it's just basically the 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 forecasting aspect of periodization is what I kind of take issue with. Uh, oh, definitely. The, the idea of putting things in cycles, okay, I'm fine with that. It, it makes sense. But it's the forecasting part of it that's tough. And, uh, you know, you don't know how things are going to go until you get in there. And so you need a wide berth in terms of making those on-the-fly decisions. Definitely. So it's sort of an instinctive thing or you assess where the athlete's at and then you, you just go from there with what, what type of uh, session you're going to do? Mm-hmm. Now how, they, how they've healed from the past session um, where you see their neural drive. Um, sometimes we do um, vertical jump testing to see um, off a percentage off their, their max to see, to give us a read of um, how their neural drive is. Uh, we don't have an omega wave, which I, I believe um, Charlie Francis uses to see um, as far as I think it's like a sympathetic, parasympathetic kind of system where it shows you where you are as far as recovery. Um, but basically, we just use vertical jump with our athletes to see, you know, if they're bagged and they tell us that they're bagged, then, you know, we have a download. You know, if if we see that their drive is there but they feel bagged, you know, then we go towards a, maybe a strength session where, you know, we can still push through, but we know that they don't have the, the volition to do a speed or a power session. So, so every session begins with a little assessment, sort of. Yeah, like a, a micro-assessment to see where we're at. Mm-hmm. Boy, Keith, that is so similar to the approach that I use, and uh, you're the real deal. Like, you know, I'm just based on on just what you just said there. It's just something that people don't realize that, you know, your training loads have to be dictated on your ability to perform at that at that moment. So, um, you know, how do you know how much load somebody's going to use next Friday? I mean, yeah, you know, that's you might, you that's might know, absurd. <laughs> yeah, you might know what kind of drills you want them to do, and you have a ballpark idea of what kind of loads. That you want them to be under in terms of just specificity to the to the sport that they're involved in, but you don't know what the sets and reps and loads are going to be until you get into it. You know, you know, I'm yeah. I'm used to the concept of using vertical leap or, or uh, different kinds of like rate of force development to to assess whether or not somebody's going stale like late season or something. But to use it on, on a on a regular basis, that just increases the sensitivity of the whole uh, training prescription, doesn't it? Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So in, in with the soft tissue end of things, too, it also gives me an idea to see how the motor tone of the muscle is. So, But that is completely subjective. You know, I mean, that is completely subjective. So me feeling them, it has to be just me dealing with the soft tissue end of things. Otherwise, there's no way for me to know what he felt like from one point to the next point and be able to delineate that with my notes. So, I mean, that's very specific to to the person who is going to do that soft tissue work. But I do see, you know, a lot of strength coaches, um, I can kind of see that soft tissue end of things being kind of that missing link towards um, from rehab back into function and then having a better understanding of, you know, what's really happening at each specific joint level to be able to get really specific if they want to, but then also step back and, and do the artistry that's needed to be able to orchestrate a, a sound um, strength and conditioning uh, prescription to get from point A to point B faster. 
for everybody who, if anybody's just now uh, tuning in to the the live uh, feed, we're talking with Keith Scheiman, who's a, a strength and conditioning specialist and a licensed uh, massage therapist. And before we go on to the uh, the topic of the day, is there any uh, web address or other info that you might want to share with listeners, Keith? Um, well, our website is, I believe it's getvitafit.com. It's the worst name ever, but you got to love it. And um, from there, we have a, uh, a website also called uh, Pete Bomarito Performance Systems. He's a good friend of mine, and um, he is also a co-creator of Perfect Competition, uh, Perfect Competition in Davie, Florida, and uh, is also uh, a really good friend of mine and is the real deal as far as strength and speed. So um, those are two decent websites. That, uh, Keith, that do me a favor and spell out that first URL because I didn't catch it, and I'm afraid other people aren't going to catch it either. Oh, it's uh, Get Vita Fit. So it's just G E T. V I T A Fit F I T dot com. Perfect. Good stuff. Cool. Okay, I think we're ready for the topic of the day. And keep please stick around because I want to continue picking your brain if you can stay online. partly designed for Keith, but I think we should all talk about it, and I'm going to be a bit of a hypocrite to even throw much advice at all out there on this, because um, it's taking care of yourself during hard training. <laughs> and, uh, you know, with all the, we, we always joke about Phil, who's not on the show today, in his constant, you know, string of injuries and things like that, and uh, especially, you know, having the knowledge base that he has, but I'm equally guilty. I mean, I think for 25 years, I've been very abusive in my training, and I've done very little to take care of myself from a physical perspective, right? I mean, I can't imagine how much scar tissue I must have. And, again, we are joking over recent weeks about the only thing holding veterans together are bone spurs and scar tissue. But but at the same time, you know, aside from nutritional interventions, which I've always been good with, uh, I'm not really good on the physical side. So, I guess that my question for the whole group is, um, what kinds of things do you do personally? I mean, everybody here lifts. We're all, you know, serious in one way or another. So what do you guys do to take care of yourself when you're really kind of, you know, busting tail in the gym? I think your, I think your, your tail of, you know, waiting too long to, to actually do anything is common with most people. I mean, I did very little, too, for the first, what, 15, 20 years. Um, it's only been in the last maybe four or five that I actually even started to think about these types of things, just generalize, you know, um, warming up and stretching and basically not being, you know, overly sadistic or masochistic in the gym, really. I think once you get older, this kind of stuff lets you know more than when you're an invincible 22-year-old, you know. Right. Definitely. I think, too, I think too it's so important um, to have a template in terms of, you know, how you do your warm-up uh, what your warm-up weights are. If, if you're doing a bench press workout, I'm always a big advocate of taking the same weights, whether whether it's, you know, the bar, 95, 135, 185, or if you're stronger, you know, 135, 225. For, and, and I'm a big proponent of keeping the sets and reps the same almost all the time and 
And then you get a frame of reference. You know, you get a sense of, okay, when I get to 225, how hard does that normally feel for three reps? And what kind of orthopedic discomfort do I have, if any at all? And you can apply that stuff to the warm-up as well. If you normally do whatever it might be, you know, five minutes uh, jumping rope followed by a dynamic uh, uh, mobility routine or whatever it is that you do, you should kind of know, you should have a way of knowing when you're on track and, and when when you might be having a tougher day. And, and that's just kind of my own uh, intuitive way of, of trying to handle that, you know, to just know how things ordinarily, you know, you need to know what's a good day and a bad day for any given weight, and, and then from there, I think you can start making decisions about, okay, is it time to get soft tissue therapy? Do I need a few days off or whatever it might be? I think that's, you know, that's really, really on, you know, as far as that, that train of thought. Um, one thing that, that I do, too, um, I do a lot of what, what we just call tempo work, and um, it's just basically active recovery. And when we're doing active recovery, I think that it's really important to flush the system up with as much blood as possible just to get nutrients and metabolic waste, the, the exchange of uh, nutrients and metabolic waste there with, so the body can, can heal. And um, you know, as far as your nutrition goes, it, it's almost 100% of what I've seen of what people put into their body and um, how it influences their their fluid retention as to how those nutrients are able to pass the gradients into the cells. And I think when we deal with the soft tissue work, it only enhances it even more if it's again that light lymphatic tissue drainage with the with the with the needing petrissage, where it has a profound effect, especially post exercise. And I think what a lot of people do is they they really put off you know, treating themselves when when they they bust their butt all day long, you know, lifting heavy weights and 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 also possibly doing you know too much of max strength and not enough you know dynamic work or not enough of metabolic work where it's able to flush the system and change up the stimulus so you're not just bogged down into the ground and 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 creating the overtraining type or not really overtraining but overuse syndrome. One of the first things that I think caught my eye when it came to this kind of, um, you know, lymphatic drainage, um, metabolites moving around, I actually saw a paper. I was doing a lot of work with uh, markers of muscle damage, and it's very interesting to me that creatine kinase, for example, which is a classic muscle damage marker, it doesn't um, go up as high when you leave the muscle completely um, – stationary and you know motionless i mean literally when you immobilize it there's less of this damage marker after let's say about of eccentric training or you know muscle soreness inducing training and i mean obviously that doesn't mean that it's better off it just means that that ck is not getting flushed out and you know the lack of movement of that muscle uh, i i suppose whether it's passive or active reduced the amount of this you know um not a toxin, but this waste product, you know, that should be entering the blood and rising in the blood and whatnot. But it, it was amazing to me that when a muscle is immobilized like that, that you, you know, you actually, you don't see the whole process start to take place with the removal of the damaged products and, you know, presumably the, the entry of the, the nutrients and the healing stuff. 
Exactly, exactly. And there's there's some um, decent research in uh, the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research uh, from the NSCA over the past couple of months that, you know, just talks about, you know, the timing of the massage and, and the markers that you that you just explained, um, creatine kinase, and, and how basically when you have, you know, elevation, body part elevation, I believe was in um, uh, volume 22, number 2, I think it was like March 09, or is it March? I think it's March 08. March 08, and uh, talks about uh, combined acute effects of massage on rest period and body part elevation. And I mean, they throw a couple of massage articles in there. They do some good work, and and you're exactly right. It's all about being able to keep the flow of the body going to be able to heal itself, and then from there, making sure that nothing is stagnant, nothing is standing still because of that cellular turnover and the fluid turnover, because basically we're all hydraulic. Right. Turnover, that's the word I was looking for, exactly, like a flux or a turnover of, you know, of these different metabolites. I think the tough thing about massage therapy per se is when you look at it, uh, if you look at a lot of the literature, a lot of it seems to be spotty. You know, it seems to be um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Kind of equivocal because of the kind of things that you look at and how uh, different researchers will interpret that. Right? I mean, you could interpret less creatine kinase in the blood as less damage when, in fact, no. That's there's just as much damage. The same workout was applied; it just didn't get released. You know, and stuff like that. Um, no, no, definitely. I think what for what I see as well is that as a massage therapist, just how your technique is is a complete variable. I mean, you may have someone who was in the study that absolutely sucks at doing massage therapy. You know, yep. the, the whole the whole purpose of how you do the massage is just as important as its effects, of course. So, I mean, how do they know how good those massage therapists were that were even performing that specific technique? You know, were they doing it slow enough? Were they doing it fast enough? Were they doing think, it deep enough? I think research into soft tissue suffers the same problems that strength training research does, you know, and there's so many variables that you have to control that it just is, is really a big mess. You know? So when we say massage, I mean, that's such an all-encompassing good and bad kind of situation, right? That, that's like saying strength training does this. Well, my God, how many types of strength training are there, you know? Exactly, and that's and that's the really the really pinpointed problem. So, I mean, if we're able to to delineate what what type of technique you're doing, you know, for what type of person is needed, and then from there, you're able to know what type of response you get from it. it, it there's so many variables; it's it's so difficult. And but that's why it's so subjective to how you're going to use it to modify your training and and, and how, how you feel as far as how you heal. Let me ask you a question. I, let me, I, first, I'm going to read you a quote. This is from the Journal of Alternative and Complementary Medicine. This is an 08 paper. Uh, some Spanish researchers, um, they conclude that massage may induce a transient loss of muscle strength or a change in the muscle fiber tension length relationship influenced by alterations of muscle function and psychological state uh, as far as relaxation. So I guess my question then to you mostly, Keith, is, how much of massage therapy is sort of neural or psychological versus, um, you know, literally local soft tissue alterations? Oh, I mean, it, if you're getting a full body massage, you know, it depends. It really depends on the type of person you are. If you're a sympathetically dominated person, 
you're not going to like it. You know, if you're like that type A personality that's always on the go, you know, moving all over the place, they hate to be touched, period. I mean, they hate any type of close contact, and you run into those people all the time. Um, type, you know, normal parasympathetic type person who enjoys touch will be knocked out on the table and will get a lot out of it. Um, overall, as far as post-workout massage, if you're fast with your technique and you're able to get enough fluid movement, they're all going to benefit in, in what I've seen. Uh, another thing that I thought was really, really interesting was um, there was uh, myofascial research that was done as far as seeing what a myofascial release even is. And um, I believe it came out in 08, and um, it talked about that they found actin molecules within the thoracolumbar fascia and that it's basically able to go from one shape to another shape. So it doesn't necessarily contract. Well, it contracts, but it just changes the orientation of the fascia to be able to tighten it down. So I thought that was really interesting as well. Yeah, that's very cool. I I remember from older books, I read a book by Pavel Komi once. It was a strength training uh, textbook that we used in a grad class once, and the whole idea was that muscle muscular development is not just actin and myosin, you know, within a muscle cell itself, but all of the kinds of changes that happen in the the various uh, you know fascial sheaths that are involved and things like that. Definitely, definitely, like fascial, like you're talking about integrins, you're talking about um, how it communicates to other cells, and then how they adapt from there. Yeah, very cool. Um, so from this kind of perspective, I guess, recovery and, and uh, using massage, what other kinds of things um, do you do, Keith, or Fortress or, or Charles or anybody? Are there, uh, what other kinds of things do you do to try to take care of yourself uh, when you're training? I think that well, for, for me, I didn't mean to jump in right away, but um, one of the things that, that we do is as far as making sure that we don't get to that overtrained state or that overuse state is um, to make sure that we have um, a direct progression as far as um, if we're going to be hitting up a, a strength day, you know, well, we make sure, just like Charles said, that we have all my strength days pretty much have the same rep range. You know, maybe the sets will change up, but you know, how did I do compared to that opposite strength day? And then when I'm running through that power progression again, how did my, how did my numbers fare against my other power days? And, you know, what does what do I really need to be working on? Am I preparing for, you know, weight loss? Am I preparing for um, power? Am I pre- preparing for power endurance? And say, like, I have a cage fighter. You know, am I, am I going for what type of bout am I even looking for? And then from there, am I overusing it? Am I overdoing it? So my checks and balances system, like Charles said before, was is, is paramount to make sure that you know exactly what you've done in the past to make sure you're not just replicating it and burying yourself with it. So important. So important. My situation is a little different, of course, because our whole our whole model here at Dead and Barbell is that you know all of our clients are essentially short term. So. It, it, it is a little bit different than, than coaches who work with people long-term, but we typically have people in here for a week, so, uh, you know, then it becomes just kind of a, a, a different animal altogether, you know. Yeah. But I, I do think that, 
you've you've got to have that baseline information as Keith was saying I fully agree with that and um, you know and I think by the way it's the most boring topic in the world but knowing how to warm up is is pretty important <laughs> it's just it's dramatic how how you know um, critical that can be and and what what a huge bearing it can have on your performance and uh you know, if, if if you have not, I mean, people, some, you know, a lot of people will do a standard warm-up, kind of a knee-jerk thing without really thinking about it. But I wonder how many people out there listening in have really given a lot of thought to, you know, is my warm-up optimal uh, for, for what I'm trying to achieve? Is it uh, is it of sufficient duration? Is it specific enough to what I'm trying to do? And uh, for myself, and being somewhat older and having injuries and things, boy, I've just paid a lot of attention to, to how I do that warm-up. And by the way, that includes things like heat regulation. We're here in uh, Phoenix. And things like, you know, what kind of clothing you wear to wick uh, to wick sweat off of you, even things like that can be a huge, uh, can have a huge bearing on how you perform. That's funny you're talking on that end of the spectrum because for me when I warm up, it's always how much can I pile on <laughs> because, it, you know, it's so cold and everything, it's actually good to try to build up some, some heat and it, it's it's cool that you're talking about that too. Just this morning, I was writing up um, part of a conference where there was a guy speaking from USA Cycling, and he was really into the whole potentiation idea, at, you know, making warm up a very significant precursor to performance. And he liked fairly intense kinds of um, warm ups, all the way up to. Uh, 85, 90 percent of somebody's maximum after they've warmed up light, you know, lightly, um, in a specific intent to potentiate the nervous system for maximum performance. No uh, doubt, that's such a good technique, and yeah. and 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 Keith, being, being through uh, USA weightlifting, will kind of understand the uh, example I'm going to give. But like for me, I've got some chronic itis kind of stuff in my left knee, and typically as a weightlifter, your workout starts with a snatch. And a full squat snatch is the most irritating thing to my knee, and it takes me, it takes me, I can get there, but, it, you know, it, and I'm as strong now at age 50 as I've ever been in my life, but it just takes me so long to get to that. And a lot of, like, body weight squatting, you know, and actually, I'll start off actually with supported body weight squatting where you're kind of unloading part of your weight by holding onto a squat rack, and then, you know, it just, and then overhead squats and so forth and so on. And I just recently made a change to my training that has really helped me. And this revolves around an idea of kind of sneaking in through the back door. And um, I, uh, my jerk is my weakest lift in, in, in the discipline of weightlifting. So uh, if, if anybody out there knows what a jerk recovery is, uh, which is basically where the barbell is at about the, t- it's about the height of the top of your head. And basically what you do, the bar is supported and you kind of, uh, you kind of fall into your split and then stand up with the weight. So it's a way to work heavy weights on your jerk in complete safety because if you drop it, you're just going to drop it on the pins and you're you're not in any kind of danger. So I have started my workouts now with jerk recoveries, which gets me working on my weakness at the beginning of the workout when I'm still fresh. And it doesn't take me forever to get warmed up for that because it's not all that intensive on the knee. And then when I go to snatches, um, I'm right into it very quickly because the, the recoveries have warmed up my knee in a way that's kind of, uh, you know, less uh, insulting. I so just an idea right, for yeah. folks. Yeah, that's great. That's great. 
So the, the lesson the lesson there is that if you have a problem body part, you know, if possible, train it later in the session. I was going to say that. Yeah, I think that you're 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 on you know on par with that because what you're doing is when you're doing your jerk recoveries, you're actually limiting the range of motion of the problem part. That's so right. That you're you're creating more more stability and more strength through that specific joint so that it can go to a, a lower range of motion eventually. And and um, the only difference of, of what, what I do is um, I'll take it through um, an isometric position and I'll start my warm-ups with what I found from post, um, post-sessions as far as my soft tissue stuff Strengthen it through isometrically, strengthen it through that range of motion because of cool. the isometrics being the least amount of force that, that you can really put on a joint. Mm-hmm. So you don't experience any pain because there's not enough force that you can actually produce at the shortest range of motion of that sure. muscle. And then from there, we take it into what you just did, where it's you know limiting the range of motion and then eventually going deeper and deeper. Love it. All right, let me wind up with one thing. If everybody here can offer one little tidbit, it could be something we've already discussed, whatever, about what listeners can do to help themselves, you know, recover and, and take care of themselves during hard training, um, what might that be? And I know there's not just one, and you're probably thinking, how can I possibly pick one? But what about you, Fortress? I'd like to say that <clears throat> volume kills and rarely trained to negative failure. There you go. Okay, so within the workout bout itself. How about you, Keith? What would you what would you pick of of your giant repertoire? <laughs> I would say um, if you don't have access to a massage therapist, um, go light on the foam roller. Go light on the foam roller. Don't go too deep, and you know, hit your whole body up. You know, make sure that especially with the foam roller, you can be active on it. You don't have to make sure that you're on one spot and hold. You can make sure you're moving the fluid around and that you're moving your body around on the foam roll when you're finding spots that maybe are a little tender, get off of them and then come back to them. Okay. Charles, what about you? You have a gigantic amount of experience. I know. How you limit this to one? I agree with everything that's been said so far. And uh, I, I always come back to kind of knowing your normal baseline level of functioning. That includes, your, that, that includes your ability to perform, but also the associated orthopedic uh, sh- stuff that's involved with that. And I encourage people to use what I call an O rating, which stands for orthopedic, and just give yourself a, a zero to five scale where um, zero is absolutely no symptoms and five is maximum symptoms. And every time you do a, a questionable exercise, for me, it's a snatch, just put that little number next to it and that way you kind of have a baseline to track i just think it's so important to know what is a good day for you and a bad day and 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 in between so that you kind of know what direction you're going in. i think that's just really really important i think that's awesome putting numbers on that that's something that i've done more and more over the years with my workout logs whether it's just an you know rate of perceived exertion kind of number or a duration number or orthopedic specific that's very cool uh, I mean, you know, it's it's just if if anyone here has ever studied social sciences, and I have, you know, the trick is that you're trying to take a a, a qualitative um, factor and and turn it quantitative so that you can kind of measure. So that's one way of doing that. I was I was once told it's almost impossible to control what you don't measure, 
and I, you know, I, I think quantitation is so huge. I think the thing that I would offer to people is a lot of people familiar, are familiar with, from a nutritional perspective, consuming a recovery um, nutrients like carbohydrates and proteins after a workout. But you know what? You might think about doing it before as well. I mean, if you're not doing that already, a lot of people don't realize with all these NO products on the market and everything else, if you want some nice vasodilation, get some carbohydrates in you. Carbo insulin itself is very vasodilatory, and when you open up vascular beds, I mean, at rest, you know, you can find soft tissues with uh, capillary beds that are half closed. And when you open those up, um, you can use pre-workout nutrition to actually enhance what's going to happen during the subsequent bout. So you can actually be, get better nutrient delivery that way. That's why those researchers in Texas have been finding uh, that pre-workout protein, for example, may be even more protein synthetic than post-workout and things like that. So, But anyway, um, the nutritional side thing and re remembering that a weight session is depletive um, in itself is, is something to remember as well. Okay. Yep. Any closing thoughts? I think this was just a blast, and I, I do think that soft tissue therapy just does not get the respect it deserves. And so, the more I hear Keith talk, the more I think I need to find my way back up to Wisconsin and beg him for some uh, some attention <laughs> because I I don't know I, I've just never addressed it, and uh, you know I think it's catching up with me. It's you know like I say with all my uh, my older athletes, you know once you hit. Even your 30s, you know, usually athletes seek people like me out when they're about 27 with their first injury. It's always the first injury that gets somebody, okay, now what's what's happening? I've been able to train really, really hard. You know, I've been able to do everything. I've never had pain. And all of a sudden, bam, a knee injury, a shoulder injury. And then all of a sudden it paramounts because as soon as someone has that pain response, then it tends to be a little bit of a downward spiral as soon as the ability to even adapt to any type of stress whatsoever, whether it be light training or heavy training. So it's it's been really interesting seeing how you know, specific we can get with it, but then also how the general stuff has such a profound effect post-training anyway. So if you got someone who can even do, you know, if you worked your legs, making sure that you have somebody there just to quickly rub down the legs, you know, it's it, it'll be huge. It'll be absolutely enormous for your recovery. So, all right, Keith, you're great. We we appreciate you spending time with us today. Well, it's great being here. Thanks everybody for being on. I guess that's that's a wrap. Great show, guys. Talk to you again sure. next week. Talk to you. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on IronRadio.org is for information purposes. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program. It's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.